Our scripture reading, though, tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain for your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last uh, to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store kept long, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. This is God's word. In our RUF, we are constantly saying, actually before every single RUF, that we are here to present Christianity's truth claims in a place that's safe to do as much, a place to consider those truth claims. But at its heart, what we're trying to do here is nothing more than answer this fundamental question. If there is a God in the universe, what is it like to relate to him? What's the nature of what it would mean to relate to this God? Tonight we come to what I think is the number one descriptive word to describe how human beings relate to God. It's a Bible word, it's a religious theological word, but it's one that you, you can't leave college without gaining some grasp on. And it's the word covenant. The word is covenant tonight. And I want to simply unpack this because I think there's something here that to be honest with you, if it's your first time to come across this word, or even better yet, the first time to come across what's behind this word in the scripture, there's some thrilling stuff here. I want to look at three things tonight. First of all, the definition of the covenant. I secondly want to look at the terms of the covenant, which is just a little bit of application. And then I want to look at the final question about uh, the healing of a broken covenant. In other words, what to do about us covenant breakers. Okay, first of all, the definition of covenant. Look, I wonder how many of you have been amazed. I know that I constantly have these uh, conversations with many of you. Have you ever been amazed at how lightly, sometimes even the very thought of God, uh, can lie upon your consciousness? In other words, have you ever stopped to consider uh, how much God can easily become an incredibly peripheral part of your life? Uh, for many people, I, I hear you, and, and what keeps coming back is to say, look, Les, when I think about my life, religiously speaking, uh, at best, God functions for me as kind of um, 
conscience juice. Like he's that voice in my head that sort of pops up whenever I've done wrong again uh, and makes me feel guilty for it. Uh, At worst, (laughs) he just doesn't occur to you at all. In other words, we struggle with this thought of God being simply a, a peripheral part of our life. And for some of us, it's a bit upsetting because it simply doesn't cross our mind. Okay, so what's the reason for that? What is at the heart of a human being's disinterest in God? That's my question. What's at the heart of that? Now, there's a thousand different answers that you'll get from religious people to that question. You'll have people look and say, well, the problem is, is your lack of application to Christian duty. How much have you read your Bible? How much have you been praying? Are you attending worship regularly? All of which, by the way, are wonderful things and wonderful things to apply oneself to. However, tonight I want to take a step back in front of those Christian duties to ask another question. What if one of the reasons why God remains so effectively tangential (laughs) to my life is because I don't understand exactly what a relationship to him looks like. That's my notion. In other words, what if God actually has an intention to relate to human beings that was far from superficial, but was as deep and profound and earth-shattering as a marriage? In other words, what if God didn't simply want to come and exercise sovereignty over you, but rather he, he wanted to actually come and experience a measure of intimacy with you that can only be expressed in what a man and a woman experience in marriage. What if? How would that change the way in which we deal with, we deal with our God? Well, what I would suspect you would do first of all is you would quickly search to find the same information that you would want to know about anyone for whom you were considering marriage <laughs> to, right? In other words, you would want to know what your future spouse would be like, would you not? And this, I think, comes to explain what Leviticus 26 is really about. Because in it we get God describing to his people exactly how it is that you are to enjoy a fellowship relationship with me. I want you to imagine this scenario for a second. Let's imagine that there's a man and a woman who are dating, right? And they're actually getting serious. They're thinking about marriage. And so they sit down to talk about each other's passions, to talk about the things that you really, really care about. So let's say the girl speaks up first and she says, look, let me tell you three things that are very important to me. Just random things that I thought of today that I feel like you need to know about me. The first thing is, is I am uh, uh, terribly allergic to um, cigarette smoke, let's say. I can't stand them, can't stand, uh, it's a terrible thing, I'm allergic to it, it causes me great pain to be around it. And he looks at her and says, well, okay, but look, there's times in which I got to have a cigarette. As a matter of fact, I'm down to about a pack a day now. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, I can't stop smoking. I cannot live without a cigarette. Then she looks and she says, well, okay, well, there's something else. You know, I have certain passions in my life that make me want to um, set our living expenses really low so that we can afford to kind of give some money away to other people who, uh, uh, who are needy, to find needy causes. And I really think that's important. To which he looks up and responds, well, that's really interesting. He goes, but look, you got to understand for me, I want as many homes and as many cars as I can possibly get my hands on. Um, I I honestly can't imagine a reason why I'd ever want to give that kind of money away. To which thirdly, she looks and goes, "Um, okay, well, one last thing. Uh, To be honest with you, I've always had a dream of living in an interracial uh, neighborhood because I really want to reach out to another community of people that are not like the one that I grew up with so that I can build bridges to share the good news of the gospel with them. 
To which the man looks and responds, are you kidding? You can't trust those people. Uh, and look, uh, I, I, would, I would have to lock my doors, you know. We'd have to hide all of our stuff. I'm not doing any of that. And this is how the conversation goes. Until finally, at the very end of the conversation, the man looks at the woman and says, look, I'm really glad we had this talk, but let's get down to business here. Will you marry me? Now, what would you say about that particular conversation? You would look at that and say, look, this is, this is not hard to figure because every single relationship, at the heart of every single relationship, is, is a finality in the other person that must be respected. In other words, every relationship has a law to it. It has rules to it. And those rules are simply the things that must exist in order to relate to this other person as if they really are another human being. And not just an object of you, uh, how do we say this, projecting your wishes on what you wish they would act like. Does that make sense? There's a law there. Look, if you're in love, here's the big kicker. (laughs) If you're in love, you can't do what you want to do. You can't because the relationship doesn't exist unless I've invested in this person and have convictions and passions that I understand that there are finalities in the soul of this person that in order to to love them properly, I've got to respect those and obey them. Okay? Okay, take that example and place the Bible's language on top of this discussion and I think Leviticus 26 will start to look more familiar to you. Because the Bible uses to describe the depth of relationship that God wants to have with his people, this word that we call covenant. There's going to be a covenant that exists between me. And you can think of a covenant in simplest of terms, like a contract. Uh, And obviously one of our most easy to understand contracts is a marriage license. The essence of a marriage is that contract that exists between two people. God looks and says to his people, I want to bond with you in the same way that a man and a woman bond together and place themselves, listen, 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 under mutual constraint to do something to keep the relationship together. That's a covenant. Every wedding you've ever been to, you've witnessed the forming of a covenant. And God says, I want that same thing with my people. But now look, this covenant actually is a little bit different. There are ways in which it's similar to a marriage and ways in which it's dissimilar. And one of the main ways it's it's dissimilar is we don't relate to God as equals. A man and a woman, when they get married, affirm each other that they're ready to look at each other as equals. But a sovereign, eternal God can't relate to his people in quite that way. It would actually be a little closer to the fact to talk about the way in which a king relates to his subjects or what we might say his vassals, right? Well, as it turns out, if you go back to the ancient Near Eastern world, it turns out we have all kinds of examples of treaties that were formed between kings and their uh, newly uh, uh, won over people. And guess what? They look just like what we have here in, in, in Leviticus 26. In other words, the king will come along and say, look, I want to give you a description of the realities that are present in this relationship if we're going to enjoy it at all. And so what you're, what's going to happen if you violate those things is there's going to be curses. What's going to happen if you keep these things is there's going to be blessings. And so throughout these covenants, we find that there are blessings and curses that come in the midst of them. Now look, go back to the relationship illustration. In order to have a good marriage, let me get a little, do a little catching up on some of my pre-marriage counseling that I get to do. You got to have two things. The first thing is you have to have a foundation for your marriage. 
That is, there's got to be something that makes your relationship to that person solid that's bigger than your own whims. Have you noticed this? If you get married just because you feel strongly about somebody, that marriage is on rocky soil because your feelings go back and forth. They go up and down. That's the reason why we sign a contract when we get married. And you get one of these, these little gold things on the what third finger of my, what fourth, whatever finger that is, on my left hand. I don't know where I'm counting. You get one of these rings, right? Why? Because that's the foundation of Ginger and I's covenant that we made on June the 8th, 1996. Right? That's the foundation. But there's a second thing, though. In order to live happily together, Ginger and I have to acknowledge the finalities that are true in each other. Most obvious of which, I am a male, she is a female. Guess what? There are finalities there that have to be respected in order for us to get along. Now, this brings us to a very, very big point. Because God is, in effect, looking at his people in chapter 26 and saying, Look, I've brought you out. I've I've saved you. I have saved you from your oppressors and even from yourselves. And I want to have a relationship of the deepest intimacy with you. But you need an incentive to stay with me. You need something that will help you know how to enjoy the relationship that exists between you and me. Now, look, this is very important to remember. The stipulations that God lists here in chapter 26 come to us that are, as they are based out of the covenant. This is very important. The covenant is not based on living out the stipulations. It's just like what we talked about last week. The stipulations don't get you into relationship with God. Rather, they are the incentives by which you will enjoy a relationship to God. Look, you have to understand what I just said. If you didn't, go back and listen to the podcast and <laughs> listen to it again. Because otherwise, the stipulations will crush you. As a means of trying to have a relationship with God, they'll crush you. But as a means of celebrating what he has already won for us, we suddenly can find serious blessing in life. In addition to that, direction in life because of what God has said. One last thought before we move on. Remember, though, that God does not experience this companionship on the same plane as you do. Look, if he really is the sovereign controller of the universe, then his will for us is not exactly optional. It's a little bit different from marriage in this sense. Look, if your future spouse is all into organic, right, and you're the fast food king or something like that, you can work through that, right? Eventually, you can sort of decide whether you're going to honor that reality in your spouse. But here's the deal. If God is who he says he is, when he sets his stipulations, y'all, they're the very pattern of reality itself. Let me illustrate it this way. This one I've used for years. It's the old block of wood illustration, right? We're pulling it right back out, kids. <clears throat> Imagine a block of wood that you're holding in your hand. If you take your hand and rub along with the grain of the wood, you get to experience all of the beauties and all of the wonders that are in the block of wood, right? Because you're going along with the grain of that wood's reality. But turn that block of wood around and go against the grain. And what will you do? You will splinter your life up. So here's the question. What if reality has a grain? You follow what I'm saying? Because if God sets the pattern for what it means to relate to him and he is the ultimate person in the universe, it means that his will comes to us as, shall we say, less than optional. (laughs) Okay, that's the first point. Had to spend a lot of time on that. We can move much more quickly through the second. Secondly, what then are the terms of this covenant? This is by way of application, right? 
Because there's something really practical about what gets mentioned here in chapter 26. Because it gives us what I would say are some really good reasons for staying away from a life that avoids God. To work towards a life that has always lived in reference to him. And you know that the number one reason is? Because it is life for you to do so. <laughs> it is life for you to follow his commands. His law, his holiness is intended for your personal betterment. <laughs> the ultimate self-help, right? And opposite speaking, on the other side, it is death to not. That's what Leviticus 26 is saying. Look at the blessings that we have listed in verses 3 through 13. They are the kinds of things that you would expect an agrarian society to get really excited about, right? There's blessings on the land, peace from enemies, there's a, a, a fruitfulness in all of the things that you do, and of course the enjoyment of God's, uh, God's uh, presence. I love that image there in verse 13 where God says, Obeying me will make you a person who can walk around with your head held high, you, not depressed in some sort of self-condemnation. The curses that we didn't have time to read are listed right after that. They're things that you'd expect too. There's defeat in your enemies. There's drought on the land. There's living at the mercy of Mother Nature, right? And eventually devastation and total destruction. Those are the curses that come along. <laughs> okay, so here's my question. How does that sit with you? I'll be honest with you. Whenever you start to listen to the Bible describing blessings and curses, college students get a little weirded out uh, when they hear that kind of thing for this reason. First of all, when you hear about this whole idea of blessings the, for the first time, if you're of a typical college student sort, it sounds a little too easy, doesn't it? You know, in, in some senses you look at it like, okay, uh, live a good life and your life will go good. Doesn't that sound just a little too a little too campy almost for sort of your, your generation's cynicism. Almost like the empty promises of the televangelist who, you know, promise you your best life now uh, as long as you just stay in line. Um, look, I know that I would say that you're right to be cynical about that particular attitude towards blessings, right? But actually not for the same reasons, I'll bet, that sometimes you get signal, uh, uh, cynical about it. Look, the reason why... Life is not as tidy as that. Do the right thing, have a life that's good. It's simply because we live in a world, yes, that does have rules. A world that does have a pattern. The world that does have a grain. But that world you live in, my friends, is broken. Do not be fooled. <laughs> we live in a broken world where sometimes people who do the right thing have bad things happen to them. There are times in which one and one do not make two when you're trying to work through the calculus of life's decisions. Why? Because it's a broken world. It's a sinful world where stuff doesn't happen the way in which it's supposed to. But having said that, in other words, I'm down with some of your cynicism in that sense. But having said that, there's a truth here that I don't want you to miss. That generally speaking... And I can't stress that enough. In general senses, it is a true basic life principle that old Miss students miss that living after God's law, brace yourselves, here it comes, <laughs> is better for you. It is better for you to honor your design, to honor the makers, the manufacturers' design for your life. <laughs> um. Look, for many of you, I'm afraid that you've not made the connection between your present misery and your present behavior. Uh, 
Is it possible that the way in which I'm living right now is the reason for the fact, the reason why my life is so difficult now is because I'm going against the grain. Let me use this illustration. It's a very interesting moment when God comes and calls the, the most extraordinary Christian in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, right? Even non-religious people have heard of the Apostle Paul. It's very interesting, though. When Jesus comes and appears to the Apostle Paul, do you remember one of the things he says? He looks at us, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's the first thing. But you know what he says right after that? He goes, you know what, Saul? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, when you were little, you were like, what's a goad? Well, a goad is a sharp thing. In other words, what he's saying is, is Saul, your whole life, you've been kicking against something that's sharp. And you're hurting yourself. There are blessings that come with obedience, he's saying. The universe is still patterned that way. And I wonder if for a lot of college students that's not occurred to them. Because we look at college and we think, sweet, four years of a break from any moral authority in my life. And guess what? Mom and dad will generally pay for it. Right? And we look and we think, oh, finally. And then I'll get back to the, you know, put my nose to the grindstone by being a good person. Look, in God's economy, his law is good for you. There are things that conform with the pattern of your design that make his holiness an attractive thing. Okay, that's, that's the whole blessings idea. <laughs> but the curses idea, and that's, this was just obviously, this is one of those things people listen to and they're like, curses, really? Uh, we have a God who curses now less? How primitive, Right? We look at a God and think, there's no God. I don't want to talk about, about God in that way. Okay, but well, wait just a second. Let's go back to the relationship thing before, right? Let me ask you this question. Are there any circumstances in which you would terminate a relationship with the person that you're dating? Do you know what I am? Are there any circumstances in which you would make a decision to terminate the relationship between you and the person you're dating? Well, you'd look at me and say, well, of course there would be. <laughs> Infidelity would be like one of those things, right? Uh, Look, in other words, of course there are. There are curses that come when I dishonor the pattern that is created between myself and another person. Even Jesus affirms Ginger's uh, right, the fact that if I actually have sex with another woman, Ginger is free to terminate this relationship. Jesus affirms that fact, as a matter of fact, and and, and she has the right to cast me out. To speak in covenantal terms. <laughs> to kick me to the curb. <laughs> Sorry. Because he uses the language of the young people. That's right. That's how you become a dynamic youth communicator there, kids. <clears throat> That's so good. What will I do without this first row of here in the RUF? But you know, it's kind of hard to complain against her being like, oh, how can you curse me that way by kicking me out just because I broke the bonds of this covenant? Ah, because she has every right to. And it sounds a little disingenuous since I was the one who broke it, right? Look, y'all, we shouldn't be near as shocked as we are that when we find out that there are finalities in God's character, listen, listen, there are finalities in God's character that warrant us being cast out. When we disobey them. That's what the curses are about. And as primitive as it might seem, we know this intuitively from our own relationships, do we not? I don't know about you, but that brings me to the last point. 
Because the truth of the matter is, is you don't have to look very carefully and just think to yourself, uh-oh, what if I'm a covenant breaker? And the truth of the matter is the Bible actually sweeps every single soul in this room under that rubric. We're all covenant breakers. Is there any good news here? Is there any way of healing a broken covenant? Look, y'all, the beautiful message of the Bible, the good news is that God still wants a relationship with us. But because he's God, relating to him with the slightest flaw is a very dangerous thing to us. It's a deadly serious thing. So the Bible has a very consistent question that underlies everything that it talks about. And it's this question. How can God be a blessing to a people who are cursed? You you catch that? In my opinion, it's the fundamental question of your existence. The reason, the thing that gnaws at your conscience at night when you're in those moments before you can go to sleep at night is that question. How can God be a blessing? How can he be good to me when I know for a fact that I'm under a curse? That's the question. And I really want you to feel this struggle because throughout the passage, God promises that he is going to fulfill his end of the covenant. He will bless me if I obey and he will curse me if I disobey. And he promises that he's going to keep his side of the covenant. But if you think about that, that's not really good news. (laughs) That doesn't excite me. Knowing that God is going to be faithful to carry through on his promises to bring justice to me does not make me feel better. Because I'm not worried about him keeping his end of the covenant. I'm terrified about me keeping my end of the covenant. Are you following me here? Okay, but here's the good news. You ready? You've been waiting for it all semester long. In Jesus, this astounding fact, God has said, I'm not just going to fulfill my side of the covenant. I'm going to take your side too. I'm not just going to take the burden of doing what is my responsibility. I'm going to take your responsibility on myself. I'm going to turn the gun of cursing away from you and I'm going to take it myself. Look, Galatians 3.13 puts it best. Christ redeemed us from the curse, there's that word again, of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now that's a weird way to talk. Becoming a curse? What does he mean becoming a curse? That's a strange phrase. Well, we we rely on a very old, faithful Scottish Puritan, Horatius Bonner, who gave me this wonderful illustration years ago. When he said, look, here's what it is. The what it means to to have God do this for us in Christ means that God treated his son as if That's the phrase. God treats his son as if. In other words, he treats Jesus, God treats Jesus as if Jesus was you. And God treats you, brace yourselves, as if you are Jesus. Did you catch that? (laughs) That's a big one. Legally speaking, God looks and says, I'm going to apply all of the judgment, the condemnation, the guilt, and the pain, every single one of these curses that you would find in Leviticus 26, verses 14 and following. I'm going to empty them out. He says he's got a cup in the book of Isaiah. He's got a cup that he's going to empty out all the way down to the dregs, the little milky stuff at the bottom. I'm going to empty it all out on my son, So that after he dies for that, there's nothing left for you. Look, y'all, this is a very big deal. (laughs) Because what it means is, is coming to Christ is so much more than getting forgiven. 
For many of you, you're living very insecure Christian lives because you think that being a Christian means God forgiving you for your sins. And in your mind, you look and say, oh, he forgave me for my sins, which are all the things that I've done past. But you have this intuitive nagging inside of you that knows, but what about tomorrow? Some of you sit in my, (laughs) we have conversations all the time to look and say, Les, I'm struggling because I know I'm going to do this again. Look, the message of the gospel is good news. (laughs) Is that Jesus looks and says, I'm coming not just to perform my side by bringing judgment where judgment is due, namely upon us, but I'm coming to fulfill your side as well. In other words, I'm going to take that for you. I'm going to free you up to that. In other words, I'm going to come and marry Bear with me. I'm going to come and marry a whore. Someone who is constantly unfaithful. Someone who constantly runs away from me. And I'm going to draw you in. And I'm going to bind us together with something even better than this ring that I've got on my hand. It's with the bonds of my blood that covers you and connects you. And a love that we sing about all the time. A love that will not let me go. And having done that, I'll fulfill both sides. That, my friends, puts you beyond probation. (laughs) There's nothing left. The beautiful joy is what we've looked at this entire semester. God allows substitutes. And that substitute is his his son. And so the last question is that, okay, Les, how do I get that into my life? Answer, you'd expect to hear it. At the very end of chapter 26 in verses 40 through 42, we hear the word again. Repentance. In other words, God looks and says that I actually come and deal with people who are willing to get off their high horse and admit that they actually have something to struggle with. <laughs> it comes to the humble. And you know what, I, as I was thinking about this this last week, you know what occurred to me? It's right there in the message of Christmas, y'all. I mean, has it, has it baked your noodle yet to think about Christmas? I mean, the sheer audacity of a Christian claim That the God whose very words are holding the molecules in your body together right now by the word of his power became a baby in a feed trough, in a barn, to poor people. (laughs) To establish what? To establish the fact that that's probably going to be our path as well. That coming to him will mean that we need to somehow associate with someone who had come down from on high. To actually finally allow ourselves to break. To stop living your life on this campus as if you have everything together. (laughs) Scared to death that someone will find out that you really don't believe that. In the midst of that, what God comes and does is he comes and washes his people with a grace and assurance that says, I have fulfilled my side and yours. It's wide open to you. It's there right in front of you. It's there for every humble person who would come in that posture. We ended almost every RUF with this, and I'll end this one with it as well. That is an invitation for you. That is a wide open fact to walk out of those doors and through this Christmas holiday, go find Jesus. Because somewhere in Him... Appearing in the most unlikely corners of Scripture, Leviticus of all places. He has what you're longing to hear. I dare you. Let's pray. 
And Lord Jesus, would you grant us the grace to do just that, even though for many of us, we don't even know what that means. Even though for a lot of us, it's just words that come out. We think about wanting to, to come to you, to, 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 to throw ourselves on you, to believe in you. It sure does sound like good news. Would you make it true in our hearts by faith? Would you provide the thing which you command? By your spirit tonight, Lord Jesus, would you work in us so that perhaps maybe it would be a different Christmas this year. That we would look to the manger with different eyes and with different expectations and with a brand new heart. So that it's not just about presence, but it's about the glory that you came to bring into our lives. Lord Jesus, would you do that? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.